0: Is a WTOP original podcast
1: from Podcast One previously on colors
2: this is our 15th episode we thought it'd be different in this podcast to instead of having a guest on as we usually do to just talk to each other about what's on our mind Yep. and equally important what's on your mind because we've now been getting email
3: we're going to get into some of those and some really interesting issues between us
2: do you uh when you're with black friends? Do you guys ever kiddingly or affectionately use the N-word with each other ever?
1: Coming up in this episode of Colors.
3: Why doesn't Congress have a more diverse group of interns and staff?
0: I think the bias that comes in play isn't about race. It's more about economic status.
3: Audrey Henson, founder of College to Congress, a nonprofit that provides financial support to interns to come to Washington to buy transportation, clothes, housing and meals, says Congress is failing the grade. And there's one outstanding reason elite-ism.
0: It's not, hey, we don't want to see more DACA students or black and brown students. It's, well, I went to Yale. And so I only want to bring in my other Yale colleagues because I know the level of pedigree and that's what we need in this office.
1: That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions.
3: Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming.
2: Justice peace.
3: Brutality exposed. I can't breathe.
1: I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America mama, mama, mama. I'm J.J. Mama. Green, and I'm black.
2: I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. Mama.
3: And this is Colors. Hey, Chris, um, normally we start our program off with a little bit of music, but that seems inappropriate today because today I just saw a new poll that Supposedly came out from the Associated Press, and, and they did this poll with, uh, in, in conjunction with the University of Chicago, uh, the Nork Center for Public Affairs, one of the largest independent social research organizations in the U.S. And this poll says that 44% of Americans disapprove of protest in response to police violence against black Americans, while 39% approve. And they say in June, 54 percent ap- approved. And this survey was conducted September 11th through the 14th. This, mind you, was before uh, Wednesday's announcement that a lone police officer would be charged in the Breonna Taylor case, but not for her actual
2: death. So the question is: Is enthusiasm for the um, movement Black Lives Matter is that is that waning? I, you know, I. I think people are just, frankly, JJ, worn out. Um, We have a pandemic. We have an election. We have a Supreme Court vacancy in battle. We've had wildfires. We've had hurricanes. And we've had civil unrest. And I think, you know, humans are only built to cope with so much at once. And I think maybe people are just worn out. And the other part of it is this. There's a difference between good trouble, like John Lewis talked about, and bad trouble. And in a lot of these, you know, setting buildings on fire and turning over uh, breaking windows, turning over cars, etc., cetera, that's bad trouble. And that is not going to make um, the cause succeed. So I just think that that's what people are tired of. And, and, and it might be that if we didn't have a pandemic and we didn't have wildfires and hurricanes, maybe people would be more sympathetic or tolerant of this. But I think to some degree, people have just had enough. Does that make any sense?
3: Yeah. And, you know, when you think about we have all of this political chaos that's going on in the U.S., that's another thing on top of this. But uh, I do have to say this. Now is not the time to throw in the towel. I know that you're tired and I know that we're all tired and we're all weary of all of the things that we're facing right now. But now, more than ever, we have to keep fighting. We have to keep doing this. We have to keep moving forward. And we've got to do it in a responsible way. And you don't do that by disrespecting other people, by infringing on other people's rights, by marginalizing other people. We've got to remember why we're doing this. And and this is this. Listen to this. This is why we're doing this.
2: Please. Please, I can't breathe. Please, man.
3: That is why we're doing this. George Floyd losing his life on a dirty street in Minneapolis and so many other African-Americans who've lost their lives out of view of the public where no cameras were. This is why all of this is happening. And it's not to set aside or separate us from each other. It's to bring us all together. And that's what we're trying to do with the Colors podcast. But we've got a show to do today that rings the bell louder than anything I could say and that Chris has said about why we need to keep moving with this. So Chris, let's get
2: on with it. JJ, I want to introduce you to Audrey Henson. Audrey is the founder and CEO of an organization called College to Congress. And rather than have me sort of feebly attempt to describe what she does, let's let her do it. Uh, Audrey, welcome to Colors. uh, Talk about what College to Congress does.
0: Absolutely. And JJ and Chris, thank you so much for having me. a big fan of the podcast, so um, very special to get to be here with you today. Um, College to Congress is a nonprofit that is dedicated to making Congress look like America. We want to make Congress more diverse, more inclusive and thus more effective. The way we do that is by helping low income students from across the nation get their starts in a public uh, service career in Congress.
2: And you recently published something that was about the fact that it was kind of a shame on you, Congress, that you're not more diverse. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Absolutely. So I started College to Congress almost five years ago now. And when I first started, there was no data on, you know, who is actually working for elected officials. And I mean, not gender data, not race data, even education. And so um, my organization and myself worked hand in hand with Speaker Pelosi's office to start a housewide report so that we at least had a benchmark. Now that report's three years old and it gets renewed every year. And unfortunately, um, in the last couple of weeks, we got the latest findings and we're actually doing worse. Worse. And so, Yeah. yeah, we're doing worse in um, both gender and race, when it comes to the benchmarks we're trying to meet to make Congress look like America, and you know, it's it's not like me usually to publicly you know criticize or condemn, but you have to understand how frustrating it is too when you hand someone a set of tools and the exact instructions, and they end up building something completely different than what was agreed upon.
3: Yeah, Audrey, um, this is JJ again. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for doing this. You know, I read the piece that you wrote um, in the uh, the editorial that you wrote, and uh, it it was striking um, because, as you said, you know, you have given the tools to them. You've laid this out. uh, And in your piece, you said uh, it's easier than ever for the U.S. government to diversify its entry level staff. You started this organization five years ago. It's a clear opportunity for folks on the Hill to do it. But they haven't. So it seems to me it's not so much about them needing a way or finding a way, but it seems like there's a lack of will. Do you agree with that?
0: in short yes you have to wonder because just like you know you and i are discussing they we have these programs there are programs like college to congress um we have tons of free training and every year i have over two thousand students apply to our program to you know get the funding and the access to go to congress we can only select you know a couple dozen at a time but our numbers show us that there's definitely a willingness from students, from diverse students, from underserved backgrounds. But even without us, they're not getting those opportunities. And I think that's where you're sensing the frustration. Um, of something else I was hinting at in the op-ed is, now is the easiest time for Congress to truly diversify themselves. And it's because we're taking away the need that you have to be in Washington DC to intern. One of you know the few positives of COVID-19 and uh, working remote is that now we can source talent from all across the nation. So even without College to Congress, you know, a student trying to come on their own, they wouldn't have to fork out $6,500 to get to DC and pay rent and buy all the clothes. They simply need their laptop and a nice looking shirt to do it. And so I'm wondering why aren't all these interns being hired? Why aren't we seeing more diverse intern groups since now is the easiest time for that to happen.
2: Why do you think that is, Audrey? I mean, is there is there an inherent racism or bias in Congress? Because we're not just talking about the five hundred thirty five members of Congress. We're talking I mean, each of them has a large staff and the organization of Congress itself has a large staff. So we're talking about thousands of jobs. Mm -hmm. Uh, is, Is there something that is just institutionally biased in Congress?
0: Well, one, I don't think it is, you know, I don't think there it's systemic racism and the offices that we work with, you know, we sit down hand in hand and we talk to them about what their district looks like. What does your office look like? Where do we need to improve? And so I know there is a willingness to change. I know there is a desire to be more reflective because at the end of the day, it helps that office as well. I mean, you, Chris and JJ, you know that these offices, each one of these members, their number one goal is to have the best constituent service on the Hill. And part of doing that is making sure um, that people see themselves reflected. But to go back to your question, so why is it still not happening? I think the bias that comes in play isn't about race. It's more about economic status. And so it's not, hey, we don't want to see more DACA students or black and brown students. It's, well, I went to Yale. And so I only want to bring in my other Yale colleagues because I know the level of pedigree and that's what we need in this office. It's huh. more of this economic sort of bias. And I mean, that's what I felt when I first interned on Capitol Hill. And that's still what we're seeing today. You
3: know, you know and I, that, I'm sorry, I hate to, I, I hate to interrupt, but um, this, I, this is really distressing to me, uh, but you're absolutely and exactly right, Audrey. I wrote something a little while ago for the uh, RTDNA, um, Radio Television Digital News uh, Association, and it's called Leaks, Lags, and Lies. And this is a story about the celebration of journalism or the celebration of position, basically why celebrity has taken over in so many different places and there's this uh, elitism as well, that's infected our nation on so many levels where if you are not a member of the club, then you, you can't be a part of the organization. And what you just said about not being from the right school or the, the right place, not being able to join Congress uh, as an intern or in any capacity uh, as an entry level person is just really distressing. It's really dis- it's really problematic to me
0: right and what effects does it end up having and this really gets to the core of why i created college to congress and what we're trying to fix is that we all know these staffers have a mass amount of power and influence over elected officials they decide the briefings what's going to be in the bills what meetings they're going to take and so if we're just allowing you know the the one percent essentially the white male yales of the world to work for our elected officials then are they really tackling legislative challenges that affect us are they really getting a good glimpse of where is america today what do we need to move forward and how do we create a better tomorrow i would argue no of course they're not because they don't have the right people at the table
2: and i, I think that uh, what, i agree with what jj was saying is that congress has to look more like the country looks, or you're not going to be able to get perspective of people. That's one of the things that's been very interested in doing these podcasts is that I have learned a lot as a white guy from the Midwest, from my friend JJ, but but more importantly, from the guests that we've had on, just things I never thought about. And I imagine it's the same thing in Congress. If you If you and your staff are all Use we hate to beat up on Yale, but I get I get the point. But if you're all uh, from, you know, the same one percent or two percent, you're not going to understand the the uh, problems of ordinary people in America, working people in America, people that face challenges that you don't face. You know, you can try as hard as you want, but without some feedback from your staff, you're not going to get it. And that's why I think what What you said in your uh, your op ed was terrific, which was, look, you got to get your act together on this. There's no you said you've made some progress in. Do you say you've made progress in the House, but not so much in the Senate?
0: Right. We are doing better in the House when it comes to geographic diversity. And we have increased the number of black staffers working in the House. And one of the statistics that I think uh, doesn't get enough attention is that we've increased the black staffers that are being promoted to senior positions. There used to be this lag where, um, you, you know, black people would be hired as an intern and then uh, that next level up, but they wouldn't move two, three levels ahead. It's it's so bad in the Senate that we know there is only uh, one African-American uh, Senator and there's only one black chief of staff that works for him. So, That, to me, is just outrageous in and of itself. The House is starting to do a lot better. But the Senate is just, like you said, lagging along. They are moving so slowly. Um, You always have to wonder sometimes, you know, is the Senate designed to do that? But when it comes to HR and team building, uh, I don't think that you know, this lag is appropriate or or even makes sense. It's really not in their best interest.
2: I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand yeah. what you said. There's more than one black member of the Senate, but you're saying there's only one black chief of staff. I'm sorry,
0: one black chief of staff in the Which Senate.
2: Which senator has that?
0: Uh, senator Tim Scott. Yeah.
2: Senator Scott of South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. You know- and
0: even she, you know, she's a big supporter of calls to Congress. I love her dearly, but even she, we've sat on panels together and she says, at what point, does a panel ask for a black chief of staff and they can call someone other than myself? I mean, there, there becomes, there becomes this issue of almost like tokenism whenever there simply isn't enough representation and it can be draining on people to constantly be pointed at as the example of progress when truly that is not progress.
3: Yeah. And this is the reason why I brought up earlier that piece about, is this a matter of, not having tools or not having the will because let's face it the folks that are in congress senate or house are some very smart people they clearly have resources they clearly have the ear of the american public and they clearly have a mandate but they're not doing it and they're they're failing everybody on this part of their their mandate and Part of the reason why I'm saying that is because as a national security correspondent and an African-American, there are very few of us in that particular position. You can look around the country. We're the only ones with a radio station with a national security correspondent, but then there's this whole issue of when you do find them, what did they look like? They don't look like me. They don't look like people of color. But what we want to do is look at solutions. So as I said in this piece earlier, that i wrote we've reached a critical point from which there may be no return unless we big and small organizations rec- recognize one critical thing if we keep playing along with this this game of celebrity musical chairs skewed in favor of the biggest and fastest and most connected one day those of us minorities will be without seats at the table of history it's just a matter of time and attrition so what do you think is a what do you think are the solutions to to to, to fix this?
0: Um, well, I think, you know, to look at the solutions, we have to really understand the deficit. And why do I think it's economic based? I'll give you a real world example. This happened last week. So the Senate is still, you know, coming in person and working in Washington, D.C. And while most of our work at College to Congress has... Um, shifted to placing students in remote internships, we're still placing students in the Senate. Um, You know, people may not be aware, but in the government, you only get paid one day a month. And so if you come in mid month, you're not gonna get a paycheck sometimes for two to three weeks. And we had to have a conversation with the staffer about why our intern is going to have to delay their arrival just a little bit, because they can't go a full two months without being paid, because you have to wait till payment kicks in. They just they kept you know coming up with these excuses like, well, couldn't their mom just subsidize it? Can't their dad can't they just put it on a credit card? And when I hear that, I they, just hear a total disconnect. They don't get it. They absolutely don't get it. And then when I break it down, like <laughs> this student does not even qualify for credit cards because their family was in this situation and they've taken on their bad debt or, you you know, there's so many different examples, but when we dive into them, you know, I think the exposure is good, but it also can be discouraging at times because it's like, wow, you, you truly can't imagine a world where capital isn't accessible and where the community or your support system can't fork up a couple thousand dollars for you to take your dream job in Washington And so I I think that's important to understand before I share my solution because our solution at College to Congress is to fill that gap for those students, but looking more broad, you know, like I said, we can only help a couple dozen financially at a time. We're training 500 students, but we're only financially supporting this year about 30 to 40 students. So with 6,000, you know, young people, interning in Congress every year and then going on to become staffers, how do we fix that bigger problem? Well, I think pay is one way. You know, Congress wrote a law about a decade ago making corporate companies pay their interns and excluded themselves from it, saying that it was um, an educational opportunity. So I've been very vocal and outspoken the last three years uh, fighting for intern pay, and I'm very proud to date Uh, We've successfully advocated for over $30 million in congressional intern pay. Um, It sounds like a lot, and it is, but what it ends up breaking out to is about two interns per each House and Senate office getting paid every year. So still not enough whenever you have 10 to 15 slots because then you, you you can essentially look at it like, okay, well, we have two to three stipends, 15 students, who's gonna get it? And is it going to be need-based or is it going to be merit-based? And this is where your point of celebrity, JJ, comes into play again. Yep. Are we truly opening that door or is the right person getting the money who actually needs it and couldn't be there without it?
3: We have to so confront I, it, document it, and publicize it. And that's exactly what you've done.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so pay is one way. I think changing entire systems, the way that people are hired in Congress is truly archaic. I mean, each office operates totally different uh, from the next. They don't use a system-wide software. Uh, they post in different places. Sometimes they don't post at all and they just send an email to their friends, you know, outside of the Hill, saying that they're looking for, for an opportunity. So there's no transparency. And then that makes it hard to hold it, to hold offices accountable. So transparency, pay, and I think bringing them up to the 21st century The way that we've done with corporate boards holding corporate boards and holding corporate companies accountable we're only able to do that because we can finally see what's happening
3: one more thing audrey before you go you know you're young and this is a dynamic program that you have but you're taking on and a really old established archaic organization and there are people there i can tell you for sure And this is not a political podcast in, in any sense we're not judgmental at all but I can tell you for sure a lot of times when you when you upset the apple cart there's retaliation are you concerned about that
0: I think at the beginning I was when I first started this and I was alone um, I would tell people my idea for calls to Congress and time and time again I heard this is a no-brainer why wasn't it done before and as a former political strategist, I started going down that rabbit hole of why hasn't this been done before? But what I've come to learn is, one, I'm not alone anymore. I'm working with over 80 elected members of Congress, uh, everyone from you know majority and leadership members to rank and file, and I'm seeing progress with our partners. And you know, we have four major champions on Capitol Hill uh congresswoman lisa blunt rochester william Timmons, senator tim scott senator maggie hassan and i think you know my my confidence comes from getting to work with them in their offices and knowing that with 80 members with 100 members we can be a good enough shining example to get other people in gear who maybe would want to retaliate and play dirty games but we can just rise above it by example
3: Thank you very much, Audrey, for not just joining us, but for the, the, the long-term effort you've put in on this program to get it to work and to get the attention of the people on the Hill, and hopefully it'll get more attention on the Hill.
2: Well, and and, and let me just say this, and I'll add to that Uh, full disclosure here. I've known Audrey for um, a third of her life, and I remember when she came to Washington, her her mother and I are friends and and her mom said, hey, keep an eye out for my daughter. So I did. And I remember the struggle that your mom had because you didn't have any money to be able to send you to have your internship. And that's what really inspired this. This came from firsthand knowledge of when your mom had a scrimp and save and I don't know how to beg and however she got it done to get you to Washington. So, uh, you know, you've not only talking the talk, you've walked the walk.
0: <laughs> yeah, and thank you, Chris. I mean, you've been such a kind ally supporter, um, dear friend. You're right, you have known me a third of my life. It's crazy to think about that. And I think, you know, that's where true experience comes from. And that's what our democracy is all about. It's about bringing your experience and your perspective to help others. So its I feel really lucky to get to play a part in that. Thank you all for having me.
2: Okay. I, I remain very proud of you. All the best. Okay.
0: Thank you.
1: You're listening to Colors. My name is Mindy Peterson. I'm a white woman from the Midwest. I live in a Minneapolis suburb and the George Floyd killing hit very close to home for me. It's right here in my community. And along with the graphic camera footage that was available, it really got my attention. In the weeks since then, I've been learning a lot about white privilege and have been asking myself, what can I do right now to be part of the solution to the problem of racism? My name is Jesselyn. I'm a multiracial woman raised primarily by white people. I live in Oakland, California, and the killing of George Floyd was heartbreaking and also infuriating not only because it's a gross abuse of power and violence again, but because our community members have been surviving and grieving and witnessing and calling out this injustice for literally hundreds of years.
3: Hi, I'm Thomas Warren. I'm a black man from Inglewood, California, and my first thought of seeing George Floyd die on that video was anger and that his life didn't matter enough to those four officers to want to spare it so he could see his day in court, which led to my second feeling of despair and just wanting to shake people and say that black folks don't want you to feel sorry for us. We just want some empathy and understanding that we want our lives to matter enough to be protected. And I'm hoping we can get there one day.
1: This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.
2: Well, uh, Audrey is one impressive young woman, and it's not, (laughs) she has been impressive since the day I met her. When she was in college, when she went to Washington uh, to be an intern, um, and I've always said this, kind of kiddingly but but i really mean it if i could buy stock in a young person i would buy stock in her because she's going places
3: well she clearly has her road mapped out and she is paying attention to the road signs and i'm going to say i am simultaneously impressed and depressed at the same time i'm impressed because of what she and her organization is doing the fact that they're actually going to these members of Congress and saying, you, you can do better. But then I'm depressed because there are members of Congress who are standing there who understand and clearly recognize, and not just the Congress, members of Congress. I mean, they're, they're, they're the staff, people sure. who can make a difference, who are, as she said, choosing people based on their connections to them as opposed yeah, absolutely. to, as opposed to people who actually deserve the opportunity.
2: Right. And, and that, that is, you know, that's a tough breakthrough. And, um, but I mean that you asked it right when you were talking to her about it, um, is that you've got, you got to crack through that. And it, it's, it, these are people, well-meaning people, people who really want to do better, but you know, they tend to go with, as you say, the person that, where they have the connections and that is not most of us. No. So, um, yeah, I agree with you. So I got this, uh, this email from a listener named Larry, and he said, uh, Hi, Chris, I listened to the most recent Colors podcast, Driving While Black, DWB. It was an excellent program, which gave me food for thought. DWB is something that black men and women do because life requires it of us. But it's much bigger and ongoing effort is required of us is LWB, Living While Black. LWB is basically living your life from day to day, surviving for a day and then doing it the next day. You either do it or you don't survive. Chris, I appreciate your sensitivity and transparency as you come to grapple with this and to know more of what is required of black folks in America today. Um, and I thank you, Larry, for sending that. And I appreciate the, the kind words. I, it, it, I had something happen this weekend that kind of backs up this. It's not just me. I was talking to uh, an old friend of mine, uh, a, pr- a Catholic priest. Who I've known, he baptized my daughter and and officiated at our wedding. Family friend, we've known him for a long time. The last church he's now uh, eighty two, I think. And the last church where he was assigned before he more or less retired was he was the pastor of an all black Catholic church in Memphis. And you know he's from New England, so you know he knew, knows of bigotry, and he's been a Catholic priest. I mean, he knows you know he's he's seen a lot of different sides of life. And he said in this particular case, after church one morning, after a service, they were having donuts and coffee in his office, and people were just talking as they did. And one woman said, there has never been a day in my life that I don't get up and feel racism. And the the, the priest kind of said, what? And, and say that again, there's never been a day in your life? And she says, there's never been a day in my life. And he was floored, flabbergasted. Um, he just couldn't believe it. Now he's an intelligent man, well-educated, but that is the kind of awakening that I think we all need. You asked me in one episode, uh, what have I learned from doing this? And what I've learned from doing this is that apparently is true.
3: You know, Chris, um, and and I know father Gainey, I remember father Gainey
2: Right, yeah, John is his name. He's yeah. a Polish priest, and now lives in uh, Boston.
3: Right. And and yeah, you know, I'm not surprised that he felt that way because uh, he's a sincere individual. Um, but I gotta say, you know, the back to Larry's question about living while black, and you know, the connection that you made between that email and the Father Gainey story, and my own life, and the lives of other African Americans and people of color. We all have our crosses to bear is the way that many of us used to look at it um, when we were younger, you know, when we were just coming up and um, getting started in life. As we got older, we realized some people don't have crosses to bear, or at least they don't have these kinds of crosses to bear. And then as I got older, there came the realization nobody should have this cross to bear. And where we are right now in the wake of George Floyd's death and so many other unfortunate uh, deaths and killings and shootings that have taken place since then and confrontations, it's clear more people in this country are starting to understand that we have to eliminate this cross. And it's unfortunately, as that parishioner said to father Ganey, there have been no days that I or anybody in my position have woken up and not felt it. Uh, and it's the only thing I can say about this is the only thing more I can say about this is that I'm just elated that we're now at a point where folks who haven't recognized it for whatever reason are starting to confront it, certainly to recognize it and, you know, maybe confront it later on for some folks
2: down the road. And let, me, let me just say this to the people who are listening who are white. Guys and women uh, understand that the the people you work with, the people you're friends with, that if they are African-American or perhaps Asian or they are Hispanic, that it's very likely that there is not a day in their life when they don't feel some form of racism. And we as white people need to be aware of that. Uh, and to take it into consideration when we say things and when we do things. And I'm not lecturing people. I'm just saying this as a white guy who's trying to learn. Um, you got to understand what we all have to understand that what Larry says, what this parishioner said to, to the Catholic priest and what JJ is saying is not made up. It, it, those are three people that, you know, uh, it comes from three different generations and from, you know, all over the place. And we're getting the same message over and over again. Uh, and I I appreciate Larry writing in and yeah. letting me know that.
3: Yeah, and I'll say this too, Chris's message to white people that are listening is sincere. And I will add this to that from my own perspective, it is not a one way street. Racism is not a one way street. It's a super highway with lots of different types of racism all over the place. What we're talking about right now is what we as African Americans feel, there are so many others out there, even whites, who feel the same kind of, or feel like they uh, experience racism too, uh, and and we have to acknowledge all of that. The bottom line on all of this is that, you know, we have to we have to eliminate this. It needs to be eradicated, and doing it. The way that we're doing it, taking it on the way that we're taking it on here is to talk about it and get people of different races to discuss their own personal situation is what we want to do. But we want to make sure that people understand where we're coming from with this. And I hope that makes sense to you, Chris.
2: It does. And I hope it makes sense to the audience. And we thank you. You can. Please email us with any suggestions uh, or comments or ideas for discussion. You can email us at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Chris Korb, and I'm white. And I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. And this is Colors.
1: Coming up in
3: our next episode of Colors. Is there a connection between white supremacist organizations and
2: police? It's not just that white supremacists might join police departments, but that people in police departments might join white supremacist organization.
3: Michael German, a retired FBI agent who was undercover in white supremacist organization says in a new report, not only do these connections exist.
2: There are many stories that I highlight in the report across the country where where these officers have become known to the public. Um, But in many of those cases, that involvement was known to the police department sometimes for years.
1: That's coming up in our next episode of Colors.
3: That's it for this episode of Colors, a dialogue on race in America. There are going to be some difficult days ahead, but there are also going to be some opportunities during those difficult days to make things better. And if you don't move ahead, During the difficult days, then you can't get to the opportunities. So let's keep moving forward. I'd like to say thank you to Hillary Howard, Michael Jakaitis, Rose Varner-Gaskins, Melissa Howell, Robin Terry, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Greg Strassell, Thomas Warren, Hagar Chimali, Kevin Stanfield, Joe Detrani, Mike Edwards, Steve Weich, Sue Ann Lee, Ernie Green, Ann Kaur, Tabitha Kaur, Gina Bazemore, and... For the music, Jesse Gallagher and Cosmic. And most of all, a huge thank you to all of you for listening. And finally, just remember to keep talking to each other.
1: You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.